Let's see if we've got this story clear in our minds. There are two men who have very different experiences during their earthly lives. One is wealthy, dresses well, eats well every day, while the other man who lays at the gate of the wealthy man's house is not only poor, but perpetually hungry, and his body is covered with open sores. So basically, the rich man has it really good, and the poor man has it really bad. That is, until they both exit this world upon their deaths, and when that happens, when they cross over into the next life, things change. The rich man ends up in a place of eternal torment, and the poor man receives heavenly rest and comfort in the embrace of Abraham. Is that about right? Is that what you heard in Jesus' parable? The great reversal? That those who are on top in this life end up at the bottom in the next. And those who are on the bottom rung of the ladder in this life end up at the top in the next. Or to put it another way, in the life to come, those who were comfortable in this life become the afflicted. Those who were afflicted are comforted. The rich become poor and the poor become rich. And while that might be a bit distressing for those of us who are closer in status and lifestyle to the rich man than the poor man, we are not entirely surprised at the story because we know enough about Jesus to know that his first concern is for the poor and the oppressed. So there you have it, right? Well, don't forget that we are here in parable territory, so while we can all rather quickly recognize the reversal of fortune element in Luke's telling of Jesus' parable, there is, of course, more going on. For example, there's the name stuff. In the Scripture section heading in the New Revised Standard Version, the parable is called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And indeed, those are the two main characters along with Abraham. But the fact that the poor man in the story is named and the rich man is not should immediately catch our attention. In real life, everybody knows that the rich have better name recognition. Being the founder of Amazon has made Jeff Bezos a household name, but do most people know the name of the person who delivers their Amazon packages? Serena Williams, who just retired from professional tennis, has significant name recognition, not just among tennis fans, but does anyone know the names of the people who do maintenance at Wimbledon? Of course we don't know their names. It's the rich and famous who get name recognition. But here we have a story in which the rich guy is essentially anonymous People have tried to give him names over the years, maybe because it bothers them that Jesus doesn't, but he has no name in the text. And meanwhile, the poor man is named. It's odd, but is it important? I would say yes, it is important. Because in this world where there are so many ways to strip a person of his or her dignity and humanity, the erasing of names is one of the first and easiest ways when the poor or the oppressed cease to have names, 
then they are more easily seen as problems rather than people. Mass graves make people nameless. Refugee camps can make people into numbers. When people live on the street long enough, no one may actually call them by name. So while the character Lazarus in the parable isn't a mover and shaker by the world's standards, at least Jesus gives him a name in this story, and that name makes him more than just a pile of rags or an open wound laying there by the gate. It makes him a person. The rich man, on the other hand, does not have a name, and in this story that makes sense because he has gone through life with his fine clothes and full stomach, stepping around Lazarus each time he comes and goes from his house with not so much as a thought about what he only perceives as a pile of rags sitting there at his doorstep. I think we are meant to see that the rich man has become day by day less connected to God and his fellow human beings. And by the time the rich man dies, he is so disconnected that he has reached a point where, for the purposes of the story anyway, he has no need of a name. So that's one thing about the names, the matter of who is recognized in the story with a name and who isn't. The other thing has to do with the particular meaning of the name of the poor man, Lazarus. That name, Lazarus, in case you didn't know, in Hebrew means God has helped. God has helped And I think that's interesting, too, not just that the poor man in the story has a name, but that the name that Jesus gives him means God has helped. It's interesting because it links the poor man directly to God and because it offers a sort of message to those who might hear the story, a message something like this. God is the one who has helped. So when you were helpful to those in need... You were acting in partnership with God. So the naming, who gets a name and what it is, gives us more interesting information about what this story might be about. But beyond the reversal and beyond the giving of names, there is at least one more important thing, I think, that is revealed through the parable, and it is this warning Don't try to use other people. Don't try to use other people. It creates a chasm, a chasm, a a gap, a big trench between you and them, a chasm that might not be able to be crossed. If you use other people, you create a great divide between you and them. Did you notice that even though the rich man opens his eyes in the afterlife to find himself in hell, he still doesn't understand or seem to understand why he's there? And did you notice that even though he finds himself trapped in such a horrible place, it brings no change in his attitude or outlook? Listen again to the dialogue with Abraham, between Abraham and the rich man. Father Abraham calls the rich man across the chasm between heaven and hell. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. 
for I am in agony in these flames. Abraham replies by reminding him of the earthly circumstances of both of them and notes that now it's too late to change things. The chasm, the giant space between them, is too wide to cross. Then, Father, I beg you to send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house, where I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they may also not come to this place of torment. And in response, Abraham reminds the rich man that the warnings have already been issued through Moses and the prophets, and his brothers should listen and learn from them. No, Father Abraham, says the rich man, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, did you hear what's going on? The rich man wants Lazarus to act as his water carrier, and failing that, as his messenger, his servant. As far as he's concerned, Lazarus, who was useless to him in the previous life, as he lay by the gate all the time, might now finally be of some use. From the depths of hell, the rich man has changed his view of Lazarus from someone who is of no worth to someone who might be used. It's a change, but not for the better. No, what it means is that the rich man still doesn't see Lazarus the way God sees him, as a person separate from the rich man's conveniences and his needs, as a child of God, not as a means to an end. And you know what makes that so blatantly and painfully obvious in Jesus' story? Yes, it's what the rich man says, but it's also the way he addresses the conversation. He doesn't direct so much as one word to Lazarus himself. He only talks to the management, in this case, Abraham. Father Abraham, he calls out, send Lazarus, send him with water. Send him back from the dead to warn the others. Would it work? Abraham says no. But I think there's another question to ask besides, would it work? And the question is this. Why does the rich man think that Lazarus should be his errand boy? The rich man still doesn't get it, does he? The chasm is so wide, not just because God has carved out this huge gulf between heaven and hell, but because if we can't see ourselves in the suffering of another, or if we think that our well-being is more important than the well-being of another, or if we believe that others exist primarily for our purposes or to meet our needs, then the chasm isn't just this huge gulf between heaven and hell. Rather, it's a chasm that runs right through the middle of our own hearts. And it may be too wide to cross. And that is the danger for people who fail to see others as people as children of God. It's a chasm of blind selfishness or superiority that opens up within our own hearts. It's a chasm that keeps us not only from seeing the needs of the world, but from understanding the grace of God. It happens when others become actors and we are the director in our own drama.
J. Mary Luti, a freelance writer and former seminary dean, has written about such matters in a reflection about this text. And she begins with this story from her own experience. She writes, the deacons of a well-off parish announced that they would give grocery vouchers to strangers who dropped by the church office. The vouchers would be used for food, but were, quote, not valid for alcohol, lottery tickets, or tobacco. The congregation was thrilled. Cash handouts were making them uncomfortable. No one wanted to see their greenbacks plunked down at a liquor store, and no one wanted to be an enabler. But no one wanted to refuse assistance either, and here was a way to help that really helped. Feeling peevish one day, Ludi writes, I asked what a deacon would do if a stranger didn't want groceries but was instead itching to rent the sound of music or tour the city on an air-conditioned bus. What if the guy asked for three bucks for carnations to brighten the corner where he lives? Maybe stick them in a gin bottle some other church enabled him to buy. The conversation went downhill fast. My fault, she writes. There was no need to be flip. The deacons were trying to be prudent, and they were acting with good intentions. And optimistically, it was the thing to do. I can't help feeling, however, that it was was unseemly to be so darned tickled about it. Privileged people, I don't just mean the well-to-do, she writes, should resist slipping into the habit of self-congratulation. Whenever wherewithal shapes the moral terrain and chooses the terms of compassion toward the quote-unquote less fortunate, we might at least have the good sense to be a little embarrassed. Do what we think is best, but to do it kneeling. She ties all of that to the scripture story with this observation. Privilege clings to the rich man, even in hell. Send Lazarus to help me, he pleads. It's not an idle line. It betrays the habits of control. The rich man still believes remarkably that he can command and expect a response. His assumptions about what's best and who deserves what it would what have made him and who deserves what have made him insensible to his situation. He continues to locate himself in the old geography of earned or innate worth. To him, Lazarus is a man he should have helped, but it still wouldn't be wise to give him cash. Lazarus is still at best a servant. But we have to read the parable with only a little compassion and a little sensitivity to know that Lazarus isn't an errand boy. He isn't the water carrier. He's a person, like the rich man is a person, no more, no less. But if the rich man still doesn't get it, then there's no hope for him to cross his own chasm. The crack that runs right through his own heart, the chasm into which his insensitivity and insensibility have plunged him is just too wide and too deep for him to cross. So, is there any hope? What could the rich man have done to build a bridge back from hell to heaven? Maybe instead of saying, send Lazarus, he could have said, sorry, Lazarus. Before, I couldn't see it, but now I get it. 
And I know it's just a story, and I know you're not supposed to rewrite stories of Scripture, but I wonder if the rich man had said, sorry, Lazarus, instead of send Lazarus, whether in that kind of moment of confession and acknowledgement by the rich man, perhaps Lazarus would, of his own initiative, have volunteered to bring the water or to carry the message, because the chasm would have suddenly been closed. Let us pray. The gaps are wide sometimes, dear God. Chasms within us lead to chasms between us. Forgive our blindness and our selfishness. Help us to do more understanding and less using. Quench our thirst and resurrect our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.